This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Ten different employees from Bell's Brewery have appeared on nine different episodes of the Master Brewers podcast. That ought to tell you something about the depth of knowledge at that brewery. And most of those appearances resulted from a poster or presentation one of those employees gave at a Master Brewers conference, a brewing summit, or a World Brewing Congress. Or because we featured an outstanding article from the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly, just like what's happening this time. How does your brewery contribute to the industry's collective knowledge base? What's stopping you from writing your own TQ paper and joining me on the show? What about your own presentation or poster at the next Master Brewers Conference? Speaking of which, abstract submissions are open until May 17th. So what are you waiting for? Compressed air misuse, loss, or waste represents a a considerably greater energetic cost than a small pinhole leak on a compressed airline may sound or appear to be. As a team, we were almost like, let's just skip that one. It's brand new. We don't need to look at it. I think we underestimated uh, how much value we would get out of that particular tool. There were 92 separate leaks on this brand new um, piece of equipment. In one spot, we're using electricity to make something hot. and the other spot, we're using electricity to make something cold. And by connecting those two systems, we're able to make them both more efficient. There are energy efficiency opportunities across any size or scope of brewery. This week on the show, you'll hear how Bell's Brewery reduced its electrical consumption 5% while growing production more than 3%. And you'll hear about a bunch of watchouts along the way, so you'll know what not to do. Hi, I'm Kate Martini, Sustainability Specialist at Bell's Brewery in Galesburg, Michigan. Hi, I'm Walker Modic uh, with Bell's Brewery in Galesburg, Michigan, where I am the social and environmental sustainability manager. Walker Modic is a pretty badass name. That's a, I like that name. It's just like like a movie well, star name. 
To, to your point about Kate spelled with a C, it was it was hard as a as a kid, but uh, yes, I've grown <laughs> into it. <laughs> Before we get into some of the projects that you took on, give us the high level results. So over a two year period, Bell's was able to reduce total energy use by five percent, despite production volumes over that period growing by greater than three percent. The projects bundled together all paid for themselves in less than five years, and were able to offset 293 tons of greenhouse gas emissions as measured by CO2 equivalents. Talk about where your energy comes from. That is a really important question, and uh, one of the first considerations as you're trying to identify what spaces you want to work in inside of the brewery to reduce environmental footprint. In Michigan, uh, the majority of our electricity comes from coal-generated power. There's a growing transition towards natural gas, but by and large, most of the energy in southwest Michigan comes from coal combustion. As a result, we have the fourth dirtiest energy mix in the continental U.S. Talk about why or how you identified electrical efficiency as fertile ground for significant financial and environmental returns? Ultimately, it's a, it, it's a good look at all of your utilities, not just to understand how much of them you're using, but their per unit of energy cost and greenhouse gas emissions. And given our location in Southwest Michigan, the combination of cost and uh, greenhouse gas emissions is heavily weighted towards electricity. So that gave us uh, a pretty focused area to work in where we could both address uh, operating costs and the environmental consequence thereof. Talk about the efficiency uh, or lack thereof of compressed air. So compressed air, the production thereof is incredibly energy intensive per unit of applied energy in the form of compressed air. About 85% of the energy that goes into making compressed air is lost either to heat uh, or mechanical inefficiency. So of the electricity applied to the production of compressed air, the gross majority of it is lost before you even apply the compressed air to operations. And as a result, compressed air misuse, loss, or waste represents a, a considerably greater energetic cost than a small pinhole leak on a compressed airline may sound or appear to be. Yeah, I think you know we all take it for granted. It's just it's just around everywhere. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But uh, let's hear about Retap. What what's Retap and what do they do for bells? Yeah, so Retap is a group of retired engineers. Um, it's called the Retired Engineers Technical Assistance Program, and they are a really cool resource. Um, they have a ton of technical knowledge, um, and they did. They we hired them to do an audit. Um, to find efficiency opportunities within the brewery, and uh, they came back with some things that we kind some things we expected, like um, LED lighting. They recommended that, um, but then the compressed air part of it, I think, um, at least for me, I I felt you know kind of the same as as you said, John, that um, I 
it's all around. You know, you don't think about it a ton. People talk about it, but um, listening to their estimates of how much we stood to lose over the course of a year was really eye-opening. Um, and they presented it in a really great technical way that made sense um, and helped us make the case for the program that we have now. And it bears mentioning, too, that that is a free service more often than not provided to companies of under a specified size. So in the state of Michigan, if you have fewer than 500 employees, RETAP will do that audit uh, out of, you know, gratis. There's, there's no direct cost or obligation to implement their proposed solutions. It is really uh, a valuable resource to, to brewers and, and industrial processes wholesale. Awesome. Okay, uh, talk about this uh, crazy thing known as ultrasonic leak detection. What is this? Yeah, so I think a, a lot of people who have been in a brewery space that has a lot of compressed air service are probably familiar with the sounds that you hear when when you hear a compressed air leak, like a high-pitched like whooshing noise. Um, those are the really big leaks. And the smaller leaks are the ones that add up over time um, and like the quantity of them, but we can't hear them with our own ears. So the ultrasonic detection device um, basically can listen at that ultrasonic level. So as the compressed air is moving past a small orifice in the hose, it makes a really high-pitched noise that we can't hear. Um, so the device itself um, looks kind of like a, a gun with a, a tip on the end of it. Um, and you can put either a wide one on or a really pointy one, depending on how far away you are from the leak. Um, so the gun is connected to these headphones. Um, so you kind of, it's, it's pretty epic to like walk around the brewery wearing this like headphones connected to this device you're holding in your hand. Um, and not only that, it comes in a bright gold case. So it has become well known around the brewery when you're doing leak detection. Um, you're, you're the famous person with the gold case. but It looks like you're carrying the nuclear codes. <laughs> <laughs> what name have you given to this device? I, I know Bell's well enough to know that it probably has some ridiculous name. Oh, that's funny. We, we just call it the compressed air leak device. Oh, really? That's totally like, lame. Yeah, or the compressed air gun. It's uh, you totally can, lame. You can I mean, do better than that. Lame. Come on, that's your... Yeah. <laughs> By the time this publishes, I expect you to have a better name for that. <laughs> um, okay, so... Talk about why. Talk about why uh, Bell's decided to buy its own tool rather than just hire a third party to do do audits for you. Certainly, the payback looked very attractive from the retap audit, but also the retap audit is a, a one time snapshot, and whether you're doing it through. Um, a complimentary service like Retap, or whether you're paying for a third-party compressed air audit, you're only going to get a look at what's happening that specific day, one time a year. And so many of the devices in a brewery that rely on compressed air are not in continuous use. So there are occasions where a single pass-through on any given day will miss a leak because the end user is either in or out of service, and the control valve for that compressed air service is upstream. So by going to a, a wholly owned device, we had the ability to audit on a greater frequency, as well as um, develop a little bit of in-house expertise around compressed air, help develop understanding of how compressed air use affects energy use. So there were a couple 
value-added propositions involved in going to a, an owned device. Makes sense. Okay, so let's hear about what you found with, uh, with this new tool. Oh, wow. <laughs> you go. This is, you can have this one, Kate. Yeah, so the other cool part about owning our own leak detection device is that it gave us opportunity to to put it in people's hands who have some expertise in the different areas of the building and give them some ownership over some of the leaks. And so our goal was to put together a, a leak audit team um, that that audits at certain certain frequencies in different areas. And so the very first time that we were getting this team together, we were dividing out areas and, you know, we have one of our brew houses is older. So we're like, that one's going to take a ton of time. There's going to be a lot of leaks. We already know that. Um, and then we have this brand new installation um, for um, our yeast skid and it was all brand new hosing. And so as a team, we were almost like, let's just skip that one. It's brand new. We don't need to look at it. Um, but we did it anyway. And that is the picture that's in the article. Um, it, we called it our Christmas tree. <laughs> there were 92 separate leaks on this brand new um, piece of equipment. And it, most of it was because the connectors uh, just weren't connecting the, the airlines together very well. And so we had to go through and replace all of the connectors. But wow. um, it was a really good lesson for us to learn. Uh, don't skip any piece of equipment that has compressed air you know, that service to it, no matter what you think about it. That's amazing. And um, I'm, I, you did a pretty good job of hiding the vendor's nameplate on this piece of equipment, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> you tried. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so uh, what else did you find? That wasn't it, right? No, not at all. Another big one was a uh, leak on our CO2 system. And that leak in and of itself uh, went a long way to paying for the tool. So we, we found a number of opportunities on compressed air, and we found a few opportunities that uh, we hadn't realized were out there. And that, that CO2 is not only a cost savings issue, but a, a safety a issue. Safety issue. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. Um, certainly went in with an expectation that it would be a, a valuable resource, but I think we underestimated uh, how much value we would get out of that particular tool and that uh, the ability to regularly audit our systems. So this thing paid for itself in what, like five minutes? Yeah, yeah. Instead of counting it as uh, years, if we just count it as time held in operator's hand, we could probably get it down under double-digit minutes with yeah. that CO two leak and the uh, the valve vault for the yeast prop. It's pretty good. Yeah, the those devices um, have a couple different attachments too. So you can you can put a probe on the end of it and use it to assess. Um, either like bearings in a motor. So our maintenance department has used it a few times just to mm. kind of troubleshoot like what's going on inside a motor. You just kind of press the end of it um, to the outside of the, the casing and you can hear what's going on inside, which is pretty cool. Um, and then you can also use it for steam traps do it w using the, the same way you kind of push it against the side of the casing um, and you can hear how a steam trap is functioning. Um, and failed steam traps can be a huge problem you know, both for cost and for operation. So there's more than just the air leak detection with those buddies. That's awesome. Can you also use it to like communicate with dogs? Unfortunately, I don't believe so. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else you guys want to say about that project one before we move on to project two? 
I would add around the ultrasonic inspection tool, the importance of user buy-in and participation, and would point to successes that Kate has had and uh, Caitlin Pelfrentz, who supports Kate, in gamifying the auditing process. I have been very impressed by the efficacy achieved by making compressed air auditing ever so slightly competitive. <laughs> and um, it, it really has made a, a dramatic difference in uh, frequency of auditing, efficacy of auditing. And I, I think that's definitely a, a good pro tip for anybody who, who takes the leap and elects to purchase their own device. I like it. All right. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of cool, too, for people just to know that there's an action to take when they hear a leak, because a lot of people get used to listening to leaks. And now we know, oh, you can put a, some dollar signs behind that leak and get it fixed ASAP if we use that device. So that's the other part. Cool. All right, let's move on to project two. So we hear the expression all the time, but just how much electrical consumption is related to keeping the lights on? In a brewery, John, we tend to say about 6%. 6% of total electricity use goes to just keeping the lights on. Okay, that's more than I would have guessed. Um, all right, so let's hear about this second project. Um, you just have to change some light bulbs, right? No big deal. Oh, <laughs> That's what we thought. <laughs> That's exactly what we thought. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's, it's not that simple. Um, I, I pulled up my spreadsheet of the different types of fixtures and, and bulbs and tubes that we had to, uh, that were part of the entire project. Uh, there's 39 lines on an Excel sheet. Um, and then each of those had subtypes. <laughs> so it got complicated really fast. Um, and it, uh, you know, when, when you are looking at a project like that and you're hiring someone from outside to come do it for you, um, it's easy to think, too, that um, you're not going to have to know a ton about the different technologies that they're going to install. But um, I found it really important to kind of be able to speak their lingo a little bit um, in order to know what was going on as it was happening. Yeah, my my wife and I always joke that we feel like light bulb technology has passed us by. Every time we have to replace a light bulb in our house, yeah. it's like we have this shelf with just like mil it seems like millions of them, and none of them are right. And we're like, we feel so dumb, you know. It's, um, but um, okay. So this is the type of project where it's pretty easy to get rebates or other types of financial incentives. I would assume, right? It is easy. Um, the there are a few key points, though. So usually, at least with our utility, they and I think most have a stipulations about which types of lights they will give you rebates for and how much those rebates are. Um, and the brands are, are important, too. So all of the lights have to be what's called UL listed, which guarantees that they'll save the amount of electricity that they say they will. Um, and then uh, if you're replacing an incandescent, you get a different rebate um, or a CFL. So there's there's a couple different components to that rebate part, but um, it it the submitting the paperwork um, once you have all that together is fairly straightforward. All right, talk about what this opportunity looked like at Bell's. Um, how much money were you guys look, looking at here? Our original audit that we just did on our own, we thought we were going to save 119,000 kilowatt hours per year, and that was just walking around um, counting light bulbs and tubes. And what? Did you end up being right about that or no? 
So for the first year that we used them, we saved 101,272 kilowatt hours. So not bad. Yeah, we were pretty close. I guess uh, you've kind of already touched on the complications a little bit, but what are some considerations that might not be obvious when planning an LED uh, retrofit? One of the big ones is uh, learning what type of lighting the contractor is recommending that you switch to. So knowing especially the kind of color palette that you're going with. So the rating in Kelvin is really um, the key number. So um, different spaces are, you you want them to be lit kind of differently. So like a production space, you want it to be brighter and kind of white. Um, and then an office space, you want it to be a little warmer. Um, I hesitate to say yellow, but more of a calm color. Um, so those are more like a 3000K um, and then production space is closer to 5000K. Um, so knowing that, um, because when you install LEDs um, and you're going especially from fluorescent tubes or incandescents, it looks radically different. And so making sure that you're getting the type of lighting that you're expecting is really important, um, especially people in office spaces who are, you know, sitting at their desks for eight hours a day, if you're making a change to their lighting that makes it uncomfortable for them, that's a huge deal and, and not okay. So ensuring that you're making the right change in that way is um, really important and means that you have to have a little bit of this technical lingo stuff down. Um, it sounds like maybe you things, learned that the hard way. Um, <laughs> we, we were... We were fairly proactive about it um, because they because our employees were asking us a lot of questions and wanted, you know, they were nervous that it was going to turn into something that was like super bright and uncomfortable and cause a ton of eye strain. And so we put a lot of work into making sure that we weren't over lighting their spaces and that it was the correct color, um, which turned out to be different from what um, either vendor proposed for us. So it we kind of came up with our own solution <clears throat> by taking some of the tubes. So like some of the lights only had one tube in it so that it wasn't, um, too bright in the desk areas. So. Yeah, we did have yeah. to learn that the hard way though, John, we started in our innovation brewery <laughs> and I can still recall, uh, the number of times people approached me pretending to have scorched retinas <laughs> and were unable to recognize me. Now it's the same, same level of lighting, same color. Nobody notices or complains, but when you make the change, when you go from A to B, uh, it can be pretty stark. Yeah. And after that one, uh, we, we definitely made sure that, uh, we didn't stub our toe twice on the same rock. Yeah. I, it's easy to have a, a contractor come in and kind of, uh, run through the building. Our building, you know, is fairly large. So um, you want to try and hurry and get through it all. And then they submit their proposal and you call it good. But um, if you don't take time to count the different types of the installations that you have, um, it can add some significant costs on the back end. So um, we realized too late that we were not accounting for all of the emergency fixtures in our different spaces. And because our building has grown over time and has um, ad additions to the building that are different ages, it had different types of those emergency fixtures. And so it required different types of retrofit solutions. Um, so making sure that that is noted in your original proposal will definitely save some headaches later. Some of our lighting um, was controlled 
differently um, than the retrofit had planned for. Um, so uh, some of the retrofit assumed that we had motion sensors um, in different areas when and our, our control systems are different in different parts of the building. So um, when they proposed certain fixtures um, that weren't compatible with those systems, it became a huge issue too. So you end up spending more to either build in motion detectors to fixtures themselves or adding motion detectors in different spaces where they weren't before because they used to be in the fixtures. Um, so yeah, making sure that your vendor is, is taking into account the ways that all of your lighting is controlled. Got it. Pretty key. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I will say too that a, a way to prevent some of this, I think, is to talk with your utility provider. Um, they usually will have a list of uh, preferred vendors. And so um, those preferred vendors have already been through a number of projects with the utility. So they're pretty practice in taking into account all of these different factors and putting together the rebate forms and making sure they have the right brands. So I think that would prevent um, a lot of the headaches that we experienced if, if you just talk to your utility provider that's going to give you the rebates first. Coming up... One spot, we're using electricity to make something hot, and the other spot, we're using electricity to make something cold. And by connecting those two systems, we're able to make them both more efficient. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. 
And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Tank Cleaning Fundamentals webinar May 18th. The Great District Northwest covers all things canning for their spring meeting by Zoom on May 21st. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. back to the show. Let's get into the glycol heated CO2 vaporizer. Um, Jeff Carter already joined us on episode 186 to talk about that project, which is a must listen for anyone considering something like it. But give us the high level summary for anybody who hasn't already heard that episode. So at Bells, we are large enough that it makes sense to have a on-site chirogenic liquid CO2 receiver. So instead of receiving canisters, uh, we take receipt of liquid CO2, which allows us to contain considerably more CO2 on-site, but it also requires us to convert that liquid CO2 into the vapor form as it's typically applied in brewing operations. We historically have achieved that conversion. It, it, CO2 wants to become a vapor at atmospheric temperatures and pressures. So we only need to apply a little bit of heat to get the CO2 to go from a liquid into a vapor. Historically, we did that with resistive heating elements, essentially a glorified version of your college hot plate. We would apply electricity, the resistive element in the vaporizer would create heat, and that heat would convert the liquid CO2 into a vapor, and then we can use the, the CO2 gas in different applications inside of the brewery. However, using electricity to generate heat is not the most efficient form of thermal energy, and moreover, because CO2 has at least um, at around 300 PSIG, which is where we store our CO2 in terms of pressure, it wants to become a vapor. It's pretty easy to convert. It will vaporize at about negative 17 degrees Celsius at 300 PSI. And as a result, there are a lot of different mediums inside of a brewing application that can be a energy donor or a heat sink to get your liquid CO2 converted over into a vapor without the expenditure 
of electricity to generate heat. And, and I just want to make the point, I think most people listening will know this, but really, um, like you said, it wants to do this on, on its own. The issue is just uh, meeting your peak demand. So if you you know have a busy bottling day or whatever, and you consume tons and tons of, of CO2 gas, um, it, it, you may not, your vaporizer may not be able to, to keep up with the demand unless you have some sort of um, means uh, for, for increasing the amount of vaporization. Excellent point, because you will see in different applications, ambient air vaporizers, which are essentially radiator fins that allow the exterior air to blow across them to vaporize CO2. But those units tend not to be able to keep up with production demands in a brewery application. That is a, a, a very important point, because your ability to convert liquid CO2 to vapor can be the bottleneck for your production. Yeah. And we we had reached a size and a, a, a speed of packaging where that intermittently was also the case. So we had, we had recognized that we had an inefficient energy user, and we were also starting to bump up against the maximum throughput of said inefficient energy user. So did this project come about because you, you looked at it and you said, hey, gosh, we're using a ton of electricity here? Or did it come about because you said, hey, we're, 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 struggling to keep up with demand and we're going to have to, you know, either add additional electrical consumption here or, you know, what exactly, uh, what exactly put this project, you know, into the crosshairs for you? Yes, to all of the above. Okay. We've, we've had this project in the crosshairs for a pretty considerable period of time, but the layout of our brewery is such that the CO2 receiver is on the extreme eastern edge of the facility and delivering a different heat source to that portion of the brewery was actually way more costly than the actual glycol heated vaporizer we ultimately elected to choose. So to to push this one over the line, we not only needed to reach a point where we were approaching uh, constraints to production associated with our ability to vaporize CO2. We also had to find some ancillary funding through energy efficiency projects, both through our utility and through our state Department of Environmental Quality, known as EGLE, uh, the Department of Energy Great Lakes, excuse me, the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. So did you, um, how did you measure the electrical consumption of the vaporizers, or did you just already know that it was off the charts, or how did you quantify it? Did it a couple of ways. We started just by looking at what the energetic requirement to vaporize CO2 is that you can calculate out in BTUs. And then from BTUs, you can work backwards into kilowatts and then kilowatt hours based on run. And that would be if your vaporizer was 100% efficient, which it won't be. So that, that gave us a good indication that that was an area of energy intensity. And then we're big fans of both uh, hobo loggers and dent loggers, two different types of measuring energy consumption. Uh, they're remote, they're, they're devices that have amp clamps that can be attached to uh, one of the legs of power going to the device you're monitoring. And they'll track over time amp draw to that particular device. And then that can quickly be converted to kilowatt hours. So we were able to start 
with a sort of empirical back of the envelope calculation and then verify that with actually, you know, quantified field measured stats. Got it. Okay. So earlier you mentioned that there are lots of different opportunities for, you know, bringing heat um, to this vaporization process since the temperature required is so low. Um, Were there any other contenders besides using glycol? Yes. In a different environment, different climate, I should say, water for cooling towers or for um, process application is warm enough to be cooled by a, a, a CO2 vaporizer. Now, one of the big challenges, you need your heat source to be in as consistent demand as your CO2. So whatever system you choose to pair it to needs to have a continuous supply of energy. One of the other places we looked was um, excess heat produced from the combined heat and power engine in the, uh, the biodigester. But ultimately, we selected the refrigeration glycol, the, the glycol loop that we use to distribute uh, refrigeration energy throughout the brewery. By doing so, we were able to not only offset the energy being used by the vaporizers, but we were able to pre-cool that glycol. So as the glycol comes out of our refrigeration plant, goes out to fermenters, picks up energy from maintaining the latent heat of fermentation or crash cooling a tank, it first goes to our vaporizer. And that heat is used to vaporize the CO2 thereby pre-cooling the glycol that is returned to this refrigeration plant. And by doing it that way, we were able to both offset the energy use associated with the vaporizer and reduce the electrical consumption of the refrigeration plant because those tons of chilling provided by vaporizing CO2 do not have to be provided by the refrigeration plant, which is in and of itself the biggest energy user on campus. So yeah. we, we, had, we had electricity applied in two different places to opposite ends. In one spot, we're using electricity to make something hot. and the other spot, we're using electricity to make something cold. And by connecting those two systems, we're able to make them both more efficient. It's awesome. So how much of the gains uh, that you experienced from this project came from just not using electricity to vaporize CO2 versus the decreased chiller load? All told, we anticipated this project to save just over 200,000 kilowatt hours per year. Uh, Ultimately, about 60% of that is in averted vaporization. And the remainder, the 40%, is from offsetting demand in the refrigeration plant. Nice. That's great. Okay, how about incentives for this project? Um, How did that work out? Incentives for this project were essential. This project would not have been capitalized in the absence of additional funding from our state environmental agency and our local utility. However, they are tricky incentives. They are what we would refer to as a custom incentive as opposed to prescriptive. A prescriptive incentive guarantees a fixed amount of money for a quantified change in state. So to borrow from the LED example, you get a fixed number of dollars 
per bulb installed or a fixed number of dollars per watt reduced. And that's, that's guaranteed. You know that that money is available to you up front. In a custom application, you have to verify the energy savings. And if your forecast for energy savings is wrong, you will not receive the anticipated incentive. So if we had forecasted a 200,000 kilowatt hour reduction and only received a hundred, only achieved a hundred kilowatt hour per annum reduction, the rebate we would have received would have been halved. So these are essential financial tools to, to capitalizing and implementing this project, but they, they were a little tricky. We had to have really high confidence in the data that we had built our savings model off of, because if we were incorrect and we did not save as much energy as we had anticipated, we would not have received as much of an incentive or a grant as we had anticipated or hoped for. And what's that process like to to prove um, what actually happened? Do you have to bring in a third party to do that? Or are you able to do it yourself just with the the logging? Or or how how does that work? Depends on the grant and on the the local utility. In our case, the grant was reasonably easy to achieve. We had to demonstrate that the equipment had been installed and provide data proving that it was performing as anticipated. For our utility, it was a, a higher standard. We we worked with them to provide them before and after data so that they could see what the resistive heating elements, the electric vaporizers were consuming, and then provided a secondary data set that validated that use and that they were participants in the collection of that data. Yeah. Cool. Okay. We also covered the issues related to CO2 quality on episode 186, which again is a must listen for anybody um, who's thinking about a project like this. Um, But it sounds like you took the advice of Dave Thomas and incorporated a sampling station for quality checks. We did. And I I would reiterate your statement. Anyone who is considering switching from a headspace vaporization to direct to process vaporization needs to check out that episode because there are a myriad of ways you can uh, you can stub your toe and uh, they're all effectively captured therein and we we did we did install a sampling station so that we can be sensitive to any potential lighter hydrocarbon contamination specifically methane and we also installed coalescing filters so that we could protect ourselves against any heavy hydrocarbon contamination uh there you're typically you're concerned about oils either from uh flooded twin screw compressors at the point of uh liquefaction or deterioration of hoses used in delivery but we we put both measures in place when we switched from using headspace vapor to direct to process vapor okay time for the last topic let's hear about project number four this one is complicated so let's start off slow first tell us about the chilling system at bells at bells we have four compressors that use ammonia as the primary refrigerant. And those four compressors 
use two chilling towers, ev- evaporative condensing chilling towers, to dissipate heat into the atmosphere. All right. And how much electricity do those compressors consume? So we've also done similar energy metering on the refrigeration compressors. They have uh, continuous amperage monitoring as a predictive maintenance tool, but also as an energy tracking tool. And in 2018, the ammonia compressors represented 15% of all electricity used in the brewery. It is easily uh, the biggest single user of electricity for us. Cool. Okay. So uh, what does static head or discharge pressure mean? Discharge pressure on a refrigeration system is the set point at which the refrigerant will vaporize given the outdoor ambient wet bulb temperature. And there's a bunch of wonky words in there, so I'll, I'll try and unpack that a bit. Every refrigerant is going to have different physical properties, so it will phase change between a liquid and a vapor at different temperatures. And if you are using a evaporative condensing tower to make that change in state, to reject enough heat from your vapor phase refrigerant, to return it to a liquid phase so that it can accept heat from your process, your ability to make that phase change at the condensing tower is in no small part dictated by the outdoor ambient wet bulb temperature because the way a condensing tower works is you're evaporating water out into the atmosphere. You're taking advantage of that phase change to transfer more energy than you would Otherwise, the the phase change uh, requires a significant energetic input. So if it's warm and dry, you will have a much lower wet bulb temperature. Wet bulb thermometers adjust for the humidity in the air. And that's important because if you're trying to evaporate water into a 98% humidity atmosphere, that's much harder than if you're trying to evaporate water into a 2% humidity atmosphere. So your discharge pressure for any refrigeration system needs to reflect the refrigerant you're using and the ambient wet bulb temperature in the region where you are operating. And static discharge pressure for a refrigeration system indicates that you have a single set point, that the refrigeration system is always trying to make pressure, discharge pressure from your compressors at a fixed point. And that point is typically set by the region's wet 95th percentile wet bulb temperature. So worst case scenario. Exactly. Well yeah. said. So they, they look at your worst case scenario and then they even add a few degrees. Um, t- typically 8 to 20 degrees of additional temperature just to make sure that your system will work on the worst day of the calendar year. And that is, that's a static head pressure refrigeration system. 
All right. So that was, uh, that was static. Uh, tell us about um, th- what the opposite of that is, which is uh, known as floating head pressure control. How does that work? A refrigeration system that uses a floating head pressure control approach is mechanically identical. What changes is the refrigeration system is controlled so that it relies on the wet bulb temperature at that point in time. So the one input that you add to a PNID for the control of the system is the current exterior air wet bulb temperature. So when it's not inside of the worst case scenario, your system will recalculate what the required discharge pressure for the refrigeration system is on that given day at that given time. So as a result, for example, here in Michigan, on a hot summer day, our refrigeration system often runs with a discharge pressure of 180 to 187 PSIG. Today, it is about 46 degrees and pretty dry in Southwest Michigan, and our system is running at about 113 PSI. And that's simply a matter of how hard the fans are running on the condensing tower and when and when you do not apply water to the coils on the condensing tower. So simply by directing the system to target a much lower discharge pressure based on the wet bulb temperature on that given day, you're able to dramatically reduce the pressure that the compressor has to achieve on the discharge side. So how much electricity could this save and are there any incentives for that? According to the US EPA's Department of Energy, moving from a static head pressure control to a floating head pressure control can save anywhere between 18 to 22% of electric consumption by that system. And there are, as a result, you know, uh, energy efficiency programs are, are well aware of that stat. And the transition to floating head pressure controls, at least in Michigan, is well incentivized. In Michigan, that incentive is based on the total motor horsepower under control. So you're looking at how large and how many motors are going to be controlled by floating head pressure after you make this change. And then the rebate is based on the sum of that horsepower. And fortunately, that is, at least in Southwest Michigan, a prescriptive incentive. So it is only incumbent that you document the total horsepower under control and the change from a static head to a floating head control system. And the incentive is guaranteed to the end user. Cool. Got it. Um, Okay. So how expensive is this to install? Because honestly, it doesn't sound like something that would be that expensive. It's mostly controls, right? It is mostly controls. There may be an additional VFD here and there. It was considerably more expensive than I would have anticipated. 
<laughs> my, my my sense is that the 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 organizations that have experience implementing these control systems recognize the difference in cost to the end user given the utility. They tend to be aware of the utility incentive available. Yeah. And uh, the, the price was a bit more than I would have assumed for a few modifications to a PNID and some VFD controls. Okay. Fair enough. So, how about um, let's talk about the success of this project? Uh, you ran into a few issues. Talk about those. The biggest surprise when we made the change to a floating head pressure control system was that there were times in summer months where we were not able to achieve the target floating head pressure. So we're tracking uh, both the wet bulb temperature, the target pressure, and the actual pressure on the system. And what we quickly came to realize was that our evaporative condensers were undersized for the application in our region. The, the system we used was purchased from a different brewery after they had outgrown it, and they are in a very different climate, a warmer but much, much drier climate. So their, their wet bulb temperatures, despite their uh, air temperature being higher, their wet bulb temperatures are consistently lower. And when you get into a Michigan summer, it can be not only hot, but quite damp. And we've discovered that we could use a little more evaporative condensing capacity to allow this system to run as efficiently as we might like it to. Well, it's a pretty good thing to keep in mind for folks considering purchasing a used chiller and shipping it across the country. Yes, it is. It has been a great system for us. We've had it in place since 2014. But as we continue to grow into its maximum capacity, we, we've recognized that we may need to make some additional modifications to the operation to get it to perform to its total capacity in its new climate. Okay, any parting wisdom for the folks listening? I would encourage people to look very closely at the distinction between custom and prescriptive rebates. If you look at project three, the CO2 vaporizer, and project four, floating head pressure control, project three had a custom rebate and project four had a prescriptive rebate. If you flip those, project four is a, a bit of a disaster because we are not achieving the energy savings we had forecast because of the reduced condensing capacity of our towers. Yeah. We were able to achieve the full incentive because it was prescriptive. It was just based on the total horsepower under control and the change from a static to a floating head pressure system. Yeah. So when, when looking at project capitalization, it's important to understand the, you know, the, the value of the utility being worked on, the environmental consequence of the utility being worked on. And if you're going to rely, as often is the case for capitalizing energy efficiency projects, on an incentive or a grant, understand the implications of a custom versus a prescriptive rebate or grant. That, that was one of the big takeaways for me personally, looking back on the past couple years of energy efficiency projects here. One of the things 
I'd hoped to accomplish when I submitted this paper to the TQ was to illustrate that there are energy efficiency opportunities across any size or scope of brewery. Some of these projects can be implemented at the smallest of breweries, while others are more applicable to large brewing operations. But there, there's certainly an opportunity out there for every brewer who's willing to take the time to understand the usage profile, the cost of that usage, and the environmental consequence of that usage. And that approach to continuous improvement will pay real dividends. If you look at the, the four projects captured here, Bells will avert over 444 megawatt hours every year. We, we spent over $300,000 to do it, but we were able to get over $100,000 of that returned in either grants or incentives. So knowing where your opportunities are, knowing what systems and features are available to you to help support your efforts in energy efficiency will go a long way to, to setting your brewery up to be a place that is not only making outstanding beer, but doing it in a way that is more profitable and more environmentally responsible. And if, if people hear this pod or take a look at that paper and make some of those changes or investigate some of these opportunities, I think that would be uh, a real win for the, the greater MBAA membership at large. And for the planet. Agreed. That was Kate Martini and Walker Modic here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want more tips for reducing your brewery's electrical usage, check the show notes for a link to the TQ article. And again, I'm not necessarily saying that it's a contest and that Bells is beating the rest of you, but wouldn't it be cool to have your own paper, poster, or presentation featured here on the Master Brewers Podcast? You guessed it. Check the links in the show notes to get started now. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Let's talk about-